You, what a great day of worship today. Thank you so much for being here and participating in that. We are continuing our study in Nehemiah. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I love history, and I love actually reading, studying about Abraham Lincoln. And he, he made this statement once. He said, some single mind must be master, else there will be no agreement on anything. Some single mind must be master, else there will be no agreement on anything. Now, that is a weighty truth. It's a great principle. There has to be, he's saying, one guiding light to which every other thought and action conforms, or else alignment and impact will suffer. Alignment and impact will suffer, in the absence of some single mind. Now, you realize, of course, that Abraham Lincoln's context was in the leadership of a nation, right? The, the single mind of his administration was the preservation of the Union. It, it colored every decision he made, and he literally sacrificed everything for that purpose. Everything. And the union was preserved. Now, while you and I won't be called to lead a nation, probably, the principle stands, some single mind must be master. And it's not like someone's single mind, that is some single thought. Some single mind must be master for any organization or endeavor to succeed. A business, a school, a family, a church, or any other grouping of people that gathers around a purpose must have a unified vision or they will flounder in pursuit of that purpose. Now that is equally true for individuals as well. It's not just for organizations. In order to attain and maintain harmony and alignment in your personal world, your body, soul, heart, and mind must be aligned. So this concept has to be personalized. Some single mind must be mastered. There must be a goal or purpose if, if you're going to flourish. Now, if the aim is to flounder, you don't need a vision. You don't need a purpose. There doesn't need to be one thing. But if you don't want to waste your life or the gifts and talents that God has entrusted to you, then there must be a single mind. There must be a vision. Now, guess what? I've got some really good news for you if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't even know what, I'm not sure what mine is. Well, as believers, we don't have to wonder what it is because God has revealed it. All we have to do is embrace it. Okay, now we, we, we have a mission. As a matter of fact, we all have the same mission. I've always wanted to do this, so I'm just going to take some time to do it today. Look at somebody and say, we have the same mission. Have you ever done that? Look at, go ahead. I see people do that on television all the time, and I think we should loosen up and do that. We have the same mission. 
From the beginning of Scripture to the very end of the Bible, every God follower has enjoyed the same single mission. Now today, as we continue our study in Nehemiah, we're going to be reminded of exactly what that mission is, and then we're going to discover some principles from Nehemiah to ensure that we are pursuing and indeed living in, living out, our mission. But first we have to ask the question, okay, let's just settle it. What is the mission? What is that single mind that should guide our decision-making? That is the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, the way we connect with other people. What is the mission? Now, if I ask you to clarify Nehemiah's mission for me. If, if, I, if I said, hey, can you tell me what Nehemiah's mission was? I bet most people, if you've been paying attention the past two weeks and you know anything about the book of Nehemiah, I think you would tell me that Nehemiah's mission was to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, right? Absolutely. I could, I could go in my library and bring out book after book after book that sends that message. Nehemiah's life's mission was to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, I am pretty confident that I have consistently communicated that fact the past two weeks. There's only one problem. It's wrong. I don't often admit to being wrong during the talks, but here we go. It is a misconception. Rebuilding the wall was the task. It was not the mission. So what was it? I'm going to read just a few verses from throughout the book of Nehemiah to see if you can pick up on what the mission was. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And then as that chapter wraps up, Nehemiah is praying to God about what he should do, and he actually reminds God of the mission. In verse 10, they are your servants, your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. And in, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, he said, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, Nehemiah says, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for, fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah's mission was, in a word, people. People. Would it have mattered that the walls of Jerusalem were torn down if no one lived there? 
No, that task was important because people were there. Nehemiah's destiny was to join God in re-gracing those who, had, who were living in disgrace, rescuing those who were in trouble. See, listen, the mission is and always has been about reaching people for God, about helping them connect with their creator. That's it. Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. His name meant exalted father. God renamed him Abraham, which meant father of multitudes. Why? Because it's always about people. Do you remember what Jesus told the fishermen when he called them to follow him? He said in Matthew 4, 19, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for who? People. I will make you fishers of men. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, it was because, as the Lord said to Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, their kings, and to the people of Israel. It's about people. It's always been about people. From beginning to end, that is certainly true of Jesus. He came for people. He revealed his mission in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, when he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In a restatement of that vision in the book of John, he says in John 10, 10, I came that they, they may have life and have it more abundantly. Listen, the purpose of Jesus' incarnation was not to heal, to cast out demons, to teach truth, or even die on the cross. All of those things were tasks that enabled him to fulfill his mission. They enabled the success of his mission, which was to ensure that God's kingdom came and wrapped up people in it. The single mind that drove Jesus Christ was seeking and saving lost people. Now here's a question. Do we even care about people anymore or do we just care, care about how they affect us? Are they just in the way and irritating, especially if they don't agree with us? Or do we recognize they represent our mission? The, the bottom line is that the mission that guides every follower of Jesus Christ has never changed People are not the problem, they are the ministry. They are the call. Abraham, Nehemiah, the disciples, Paul, and certainly Jesus all shared the same mission of seeking and saving people for God. And those of us who seek to flourish as followers of Jesus must recognize that is the 
single mind. That's the one. When Nehemiah visited with his brother, he knew he had to do something. Now, let's just review. What what was it that Nehemiah learned about the people that served as a call to action? It's what Hanani told him in chapter 1 of verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great, say it, trouble and disgrace. Let's try it again. Everybody awake? We good? They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, we talked about this in week one. But the state of disgrace means that they were living without the grace of God's blessing. They were in disgrace. What does that mean? It means there was chaos instead of shalom, instead of God's peace. It means that things were not the way they were supposed to be. They were living in the land that should have been flowing with milk and honey, but they were in a state of disgrace, and they and their families were struggling. But it's not the state of disgrace that I want to focus on. I want to focus on the trouble they were in. Now, if you recall, we learned that that word trouble in the Hebrew doesn't just refer to their present condition. Okay, we, anybody can look around and say, ooh, we're in trouble right now. But the idea would be we can get out of trouble if we work hard. That, that isn't where they were. The state of trouble they were in, and the word that he uses specifically, indicated future demise. Okay, it wasn't just about their circumstances, it was about their direction. Things were going from bad to worse because they were on the path to destruction. Okay, they had let things go for so long that if they kept moving, that they were drifting. They were drifting away from God. Listen, I've got news for you. Nobody drifts to God. When we drift, when we choose apathy in our spiritual disciplines, in our commitment to worship and generosity and service, we drift, we move away from God. They were drifting away from God. Things were moving from bad to worse, and they were literally on the path to destruction. Now, there's a Jewish proverb that there's no question in my mind, Nehemiah knew, and thankfully for us, it is recorded in God's holy writ, Proverbs 24, verses 10 through 12. I think these are my, these are, this is my favorite proverb. Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 10. If you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? In other words, if people need you and you don't step up, it doesn't matter how strong you think you are, because if you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? But he's not finished. 
Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering toward slaughter. And if you say to God, but you know, we, we knew nothing about this. We, were, we, we, did, we didn't know what was going on in Jerusalem. We knew nothing about this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? And will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? I'm convinced Nehemiah is a man committed to God. Knew that proverb. But if he didn't, ignorance wouldn't have gotten him off the hook. It was true. This was a time of trouble for his people. And Nehemiah was a strong, strong man. But he knew that his strength, if it was unused for the challenges that faced his people, it would be no strength at all. The call was clear. The people in Jerusalem, his people, were in trouble. They were being led away to death. That's what the word trouble meant, great trouble. Their complacency about the walls, they had been there for 10 years with Ezra, they had rebuilt the temple, but for whatever reason, they didn't leverage that momentum and continue to rebuild God's city for God's glory. They started drifting. They were complacent about the walls, and it was a sign of their apathy toward God and his mission. They were blindly staggering toward the slaughter. And with the information that Nehemiah gleaned from Hanani and his crew that came from Jerusalem, he could no longer plead ignorance. He knew it. He could not say, as the proverb says, I know nothing about this, because he knew and Nehemiah knew that God knew he knew. And in Nehemiah's heart and mind, he knew he had to step in and use the strength and the position and the privilege that God had given him to do something about it, to help those people. Because it's about the people. So as we learned last week, Nehemiah spent four months making himself available to God. He fasted and prayed. He wept. He, he asked God to give him favor before King Artaxerxes. And he knew if God would answer that prayer, that God was leading him to step into the tumult. And with God's help, Nehemiah would not falter in the time of trouble. 
He would do his part to rescue those who were being drugged away to the slaughter. Now listen, he was sobered by the truth of that proverb, by the principle, by what we all know. If we all know that people are the mission, and we all know people who are in disgrace and in trouble, who are going the wrong direction and going quickly, then we all know what needs to be done. He was sobered by the truth. And I, I think we would be wise to join him. All around us, all around us, there are people in trouble. People we love. People we do life with. People that meander through our circle of influence. They are being duped into indifference and rebellion by the gods of the secular age. And the gods are leading them away to death. They're in great trouble and disgrace. There is no peace. And they're staggering aimlessly toward the slaughter. That's the word of God. Can, can we say we didn't know? Only if you have your head buried in the sand. Is, is our strength too small for the moment? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, except engage with people that are being led away to the slaughter. Is our strength too small? God, who gives us life and guards it, in him we live and move and have our being. He knows. He knows we know. And the scripture is crystal clear. He will repay us for our response, one way or another. That's a sobering truth. What does it mean? It means once we are connected with God, he expects us to connect others to him. We are to be connectors. And, and, he will repay us for the diligence or the dereliction of our duty. God help his church. 
you say, well, okay, I, I, I've got it. I know what we're supposed to do, but I don't know what to do. Like, where, where, do, I, where do I start? I've never done this kind of thing before. I've fallen for the lie that my religion is personal. I need to keep it to myself. I'm not sure I'm supposed to get involved. I mean, I know I see the truth because people that are in darkness stumble in darkness and they're stumbling toward, I mean, there's no peace. There's chaos, division, anger, and hatred. We all see it. But how do I move from over here where I am in the light to over there where they are in the dark? How do I engage? Well, first, by the way, let me just say this. First, you have to be in the light. There, there's, you, you can't let your light shine if your light's not on. And here's the way the light comes on. We trust in Jesus Christ. You place your faith in Jesus Christ, and he moves you. We are reborn from darkness and into the light. It begins with placing your faith in Jesus. So if you're not at a place where you say, I I know for certain that I, I am connected to God through faith in Jesus, then that's where we start. It is the most important thing. It's why he came. You are the reason he came. Remember, it's all about the people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. That's where it begins. And so by faith in Jesus, we move from darkness to light. And when we're in the light, God says, hello, look back there to the darkness. That's your mission field. That's where we serve. But I don't know what to do. Where do we start? How do we help the people? Well, thankfully, Nehemiah gives us the pattern. If you want to look at some verses, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. But there's four simple things Nehemiah told us to do. He modeled for us to do so we know where to engage, where to begin. First, open your eyes. Open your eyes. When Nehemiah's brother visited him, do you remember Hananiah and his entourage came from Jerusalem? They made the four-month trip. Nehemiah could have just like kept it really surface level and avoided the topic altogether. He could have asked about the trip, how was the weather, could have asked about his family. He could have even steered the discussion to talk about the amazing things that Ezra did in rebuilding the temple. He could have done that, and maybe he did, but that wasn't all he did. He asked about the people and the place. 
He wanted to see how they were. He wanted his eyes to be open to the truth. And when they were, he took the next step. Second, we have to see what we see. That takes courage. And then take our concerns to God. To see what you see is courageous. To be willing to acknowledge the truth. In verse 4, this is what happened. You'll remember he said in chapter 1, verse 4, when I heard these things, what did he do? I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You know what that tells us? He was willing to see the trouble. To recognize where things were headed. And he didn't insulate himself from the pain. You know how we do that, by the way? Blame. They did it to themselves. They've been there 10 years. What are they waiting on? They could have already rebuilt the walls and things would be totally different. He wasn't blaming them. He entered their pain and and their heartache. Why? Because he loved them. It was about them. Not their past but their glorious future in grace. Remember, his vision was to regrace those who were living in disgrace. So he didn't wallow in the misery once he accepted it. He didn't stay there. It didn't paralyze him. He actually prayed through it. He took his concern to God. I think we're a lot better about pinpointing problems than praying about them, aren't we? But it it doesn't take a rocket scientist to point out a problem. But it takes a person who's committed to God to pray about it. It takes a person who has faith in God to pray about it. You know, faith is demonstrated through prayer. Prayer is a declaration of our faith. I'm going to talk to God about this because I have faith that he can do something about it. After he prayed, during the prayer, he took the third step. Third step is to make yourself available for service. In other words... You say to God, I'm okay if this costs me something. What I have, time, talent, treasure, is yours. Nehemiah made himself available to serve. It was a sacrifice. You know where he was, right? He was in the palace in Susa. Okay, just in case you're not familiar with the geography of that part of the world, and I'm not at all. I'm just going to tell you, but I did my homework. They were in Jerusalem. He was in Susa. 
It's a four-month trip. He wasn't next door. And so he wasn't even sure how he could help. That's a long way. But in declaring himself available to serve, he was saying to God, I'll go where you send me. I'll do what you call me to do. He wasn't sure how to help, but through that time of prayer, he knew that he had to make himself available to rescue those who were being led away and to hold back those who were staggering toward the slaughter. Can I tell you something? Rescuing and holding back require presence. I always love to see, I mean, it's sad at one level, but I love to watch the Coast Guard mobilize to the rescue. They're getting there. They're not sitting back going, wow, that's a it's just a terrible thing. We can, can we rescue them from here? No, you have to go. You have to leave the light party and take your light to the darkness to offer rescue and hope. Rescue those who are being led away to death. Hold back those staggering toward the slaughter. It requires presence. Nehemiah was saying to God, I will go. I will go. We have to run to those. Seek those who are stumbling in darkness. So, in the prayer, Nehemiah asked God for favor because he planned to ask for a leave of absence from King Artaxerxes. He was his cupbearer. He was going to ask for permission to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to rebuild the wall. That's what he wanted Artaxerxes to believe, but Nehemiah was interested in rebuilding the people. And look what he says in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, the last part of verse 8. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. God opened the door. And then Nehemiah was like, well, I don't know about all this. Should, should I really go? No, you know what he did? He was off and running. He stepped into the opportunity immediately running toward the darkness and pain and disgrace. But there was a hurdle he had to overcome. So, so I want you to think about this. There was a great deal of unfamiliarity. Right? He, he, didn't know, he, he didn't know what was going on in Jerusalem. His brother had to tell him. So he couldn't picture the state of the walls the destruction of the gates, what the city looked like. He was unfamiliar. But most importantly, he was unfamiliar with the people he was going to help. He didn't know them, and they didn't know him. And what if he got there and they were like, no, nah, you know what, we're good. We're just fine the way things are. What if they were insulted by his attempts to fix their problems? 
Like, dude, you've got enough problems. Leave us alone. And why was he coming there now? Can you see them thinking, just being suspicious? Was Nehemiah coming there to cover himself in glory? Nehemiah had to figure out how to connect with them. There was a disconnect, four months travel time and unfamiliarity. And if he didn't connect with them, they wouldn't connect with God. So here's the fourth thing we have to do. We have to be willing to connect with people where they are. Remember, we have to go, we have to be present. Look at verses 17 and 18 in Nehemiah chapter 2. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now, how did Nehemiah establish a personal connection? It was really simple but it could be intimidating. First, he identified with the people. What did he say in verse 17? Do you see the trouble y'all have gotten yourselves into? That's not what he said at all. He said, do you see the trouble we are in? He personally wasn't in trouble. As a matter of fact, he had a great life. He was in the inner circle of the most powerful man in the world. The king believed in Nehemiah and who he was. He had a great life. He wasn't personally in trouble. But it wasn't about him. It was about God and God's people and God's cause. And if they were in trouble, he was in trouble because he was with them. He went there to identify with them. Second, he led them to see the truth. Look, Jerusalem was in ruins. You know the saying, like, if, you, if something is the way it is for 30 days, you just think that's the way it's always going to be. So if something's out of place in your house and, or broken and you just leave it for a month, then that's it. They had been there 10 years looking at the ruins. 10 years. They weren't even seeing the truth. And Nehemiah didn't sugarcoat the problems. He didn't hide the truth and hope they liked him. He didn't want to, he, he didn't run from the truth and hoping that he didn't ruffle any feathers. Their circumstances were not ideal and someone had to have the courage to tell them the truth because something had to be done. By the way, telling them the truth was the most loving thing that could have been done. But he had to be there to tell it. So he led them to see the truth, and then third, he pointed out hope. He told them there was something they could do together. 
They were in a dire situation, but they were not in a hopeless situation. There was a way out. There was a way that they could move from disgrace to grace. There's always a way out. There's always hope. He is the God of hope. So the fourth thing he did was he told him his story. How the gracious hand of his God was upon him. Now, I just want you to think about what happened. Nehemiah is living in Susa. The Jerusalem's falling apart. It's in ruins. The people are in disgrace. Everything's falling apart. And this guy that no one knows shows up with boards, timber. He came to town with the king's cavalry and with army officers. And while he had not told them what he was really there to do, he spent three days with them just getting to know them. And don't you think they were wondering, like, what is this guy about? Do do you think they would have noticed that he was in a good position? How many Jews do you think traveled to Jerusalem with enough wood to rebuild the gates of the city? How many Jews do you think traveled to Jerusalem with the king's army? I can answer that question for you. None. It had never happened. So they were noticing Nehemiah. He was different. And when he was able to say that it was because the gracious hand of his God was upon him, he had the credibility to connect them with grace. They would listen to him. Listen, when we've been praying for someone to move from disgrace to grace, God will give us opportunities to connect with them because we have a story. God's gracious hand has been on us. We can tell people how it works. We can show them what it's like to live in the light. We just have to be diligent about making a personal connection, about going where they are. Not condemnatory, but we have to be willing to tell the truth. We have to point out the crisis and the hope in Christ. We have to be willing to tell our story. Listen, I've got news for you. Your story of your transformation from darkness to light is the most powerful tool you have. If that's your story. If they noticed a difference, and how could they not with Nehemiah? What did they do? They said, we will follow you. We will rebuild with you. Let's get to work right now. Because... I want the grace, I want the hope, I want the peace that God has given you. Listen, that's, that's the mission, that we take the story that God has given us and we give it to others. We stand by them and lead them from disgrace to grace from trouble to peace, from darkness to light.
It's our mission. The question is, are you living it? Have you embraced it? Let's bow our heads. God, we are so thankful that Jesus modeled this mission that as the scripture says, when the fullness of time came, he stepped out of eternity and into time to make a way for us to live eternally with you. Father, I pray for those in this room who may not know you. I ask, Lord, that today they would hear the message of hope and light and grace. if they haven't stepped into your love by placing their faith in Jesus, I pray that today would be the day. Those of us who are in the light, I pray that we would be willing to embrace the mission, the single mind of service introduce people to you. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.